We are in Luke chapter 21. As we study prophecy, one thing becomes very clear to us. Things will not get better before the end. It will only get worse. Notice how Paul describes the last days. Listen to these words in 2 Timothy 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good, and God rather, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. People, this is what we're going to face. This is what this age is about. What should we do in light of what we are going to face? Exactly what Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 21. As they face the future, he tells them and gives them what they must do in light of their circumstances. Today we're going to see we must obey the Lord as his return draws near. Last week we saw that prophecy has several key characteristics Briefly, we saw that it can be difficult, but not impossible to understand. It takes work to understand, but study and it's worth it. We saw that prophecy gives hope and reason to persevere. It should be interpreted with a normal historical grammatical method. And prophecy uses figurative language, but those symbols have real, noble truth behind them. Prophecy often uses prophetic foreshortening. This means a prophet includes two or more events in a single passage and these events can have the appearance that they're back to back, but in fact there can be a big time gap between the two events. And finally we saw that prophecy sometimes had a near and far fulfillment. We saw the prophet often refers to a person or event that will have a near-in-time fulfillment, and then also there will be a far fulfillment. This was like the prophecy of the Antichrist that we mentioned last week in Daniel 9. Antiochus was the near in 167 B.C., that is, before Christ was born, but it was pointing to a far fulfillment of an ultimate Antichrist, which has yet to happen and will happen before Jesus' second coming. I have another example from an Old Testament prophecy for you this morning. Again, it is really good for all of you to know both the Old and the New Testament. We see as we study the Old Testament who God is and what He does. We're uh, we're about studying the whole Bible here, not just the New Testament. I think it's it was funny uh, somebody made a comment uh, and I posted it. They said, "Man, you are really brave, Mark." Uh, to to preach uh, Old Testament passages and Old Testament prophets. And then uh, he said that to me. He said, Mark's really brave to preach an Old Testament prophecy and, and, and judges some of these Old Testament passages. And then he asked me, how long has it been since you've preached an Old Testament passage? It's kind of a well-known fact around here. And 
now it's he knows <laughs> that Pastor Mike preaches New Testament in the morning and Mark preaches Old Testament in the evening. The reality is this, the Old Testament is very important and we need to know it. We, we get a good glimpse of how God is, who God is, and what God's doing. So look with me over at Isaiah 7 briefly uh, to, to kind of prep again to get our minds and understanding what prophecy is like. This passage is well known as a prophetic passage for Jesus' first coming. But I want you to notice in this passage there's a near and far component. There is a reference to a son who will be born and this son will have a near fulfillment. But the son will also point forward to a deliverer in a far fulfillment. Look at Isaiah 7, verse 3 and 7. It says, or three through, we'll read through seven. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jeshub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of resonant Aram and the son of Ramilah because of Aram and Ephraim and the son of Ramilah has planned evil against you saying let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it thus says the Lord God it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Put real simple, there are two kings here that Isaiah is warning against and talking about. These two kings are desiring or focused on terrorizing Judah. The Aram in, in, in Rezin is one, and then the son of Ramilah is the other. These two kings were plotting the destruction of Judah where King Ahaz was the king. Now look at the prophecy that Isaiah gives in Isaiah 10. Notice it says, Then the Lord spoke against Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Make it deep as Sheol and, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, here it is. Look. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house such days as you have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, Judah the king of Assyria. Now, what do we have here? Now, I'm not going to go into a full explanation, but look at this passage. A short explanation is this. King Ahaz of Judah rejects the sign or doesn't want it because of his pride, it appears. But God prophesies anyway through Isaiah that a sign's coming. 
The sign was to give the people assurance that they will not fall to those two evil kings in the north. The sign is a son will be given. He will be called Emmanuel. Before the son is old enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread will be forsaken. Thus the sign will be to assure the people that the two kings will not carry out their evil plot. Do you all see this? you understand? Okay, so when you're looking at this, who is the son who is given? A lot of you said Jesus, right? Jesus. Because you've seen that passage before, right? Look over at Isaiah 8. Look at Isaiah 8. 8, 8.3, next chapter. Isaiah 8.3. So I approached the prophetess. This is Isaiah talking. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. What? Then the Lord said to me, name him. And I'm not going to do that. We're just going to call him Mayor. Mayor. (laughs) For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Wait. Here's the prophet being fulfilled in 8.3 of the son. Which one is it? Is it Isaiah's son or is it Jesus? Yes. There's a near and a far. It appears that one points to the other. Okay? And you see this because we know that it's if we say it's just Isaiah's son, then turn over to Matthew 1. <laughs> turn over to Matthew 1. If we say it's just Isaiah's son, then we've got a problem. If we say it's both, you'll see that this idea of a deliverer being fulfilled through the sign is seen in both places. Matthew 1 says this, (coughs) She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all that took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Uh Uh-oh. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see what I'm talking about? That there appears to be this initial with a full fulfillment coming later. So it is very important for us to understand that this is typical of prophecy. Okay, this is typical of prophecy. And in light of that, when we come to Luke 21... And we start saying, well, it looks like he's looking at the destruction of the temple. But then when you read Matthew 24, and it says it looks like it's looking to a destruction in the end before he comes back. Which one is it? Well, it takes a little bit of work. But he's pointing to this one and that one in that big last discussion. Does everybody understand what I'm getting at here? All right. So you ask Mike, why are you so fixed on... Old Testament prophecy the last two weeks. Because, listen, you need to understand this kind of prophecy. You need to understand biblical prophecy if you're going to look at a prophetic passage even in the New Testament. Because there's consistency. You understand? We have a promise of a destruction to come upon Israel and its temple in Luke 21. But we also have a promise of destruction of Israel and the Antichrist who is going to be in the far. So there's a near and a far destruction for Israel. 
It is very important to know that both the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment have similar characteristics. Listen closely. This is where prophecy, the rubber hits the road. This is important. If there are similarities between the two times, okay, it means that the application for the near and the far are similar also. And the commands that Jesus gives for his disciples in light of what's just about to happen also applies to the commands that are given when he comes back. What this means is, is that whole period of time where we're waiting on the return of Christ, those commands are applicable to who? Us. They're apply, they apply to us. These commands that Jesus gives, and we're going to look at through this passage, they apply to us as much as they do to the disciples. So it's very important. Now you say, why should I study uh, a prophecy? Here's the answer. Because Jesus tells us how to live in the world that we live in. He gives us great truth on how to live in a world that looks like it's in chaos. He explains how to deal with a world that looks like it's in its last days. How do I survive in this world when the world looks like it's crashing in on me? Answer, Jesus gives us the commands in these passages. He tells us how to live. So let's look at these commands. Today we move forward and look at the commands Jesus gives for his disciples. To obey in light of the coming terror. We saw last week that Jesus described very clearly the destruction of Jerusalem. And that brought about some questions from his disciples, right? Disciples were provoked to ask Jesus questions because of this statement concerning the destruction of the temple. The questions looked to the destruction of Jerusalem. But then they smashed together the end of the age too, questions. They were asking those too. Because they didn't understand the gap. They didn't understand that there would be a time period where Jesus was going to come back later. They didn't understand that. So, that's what our setting is. By the way, they were looking for this day of vengeance at his first coming, but they had missed it. They could not comprehend that the full day of vengeance was later. By the way, another thing. Did you know that out of the people that Jesus was talking to, do you all remember who they were? He was talking to four disciples. Remember, we know this from Matthew's, the parallel account. He was talking to James and John, Peter and Andrew. You remember? Most likely, listen to me, most likely only one out of the four of those made it to the temple destruction. You understand what I mean by that? Out of those four that he was talking to, only one of them made it alive until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Most likely the other three died. They were crucified. They were killed under Nero. Which happened before 70 AD. When Titus destroyed the temple. So Jesus is giving all these words in Luke 21. Who are they for? Interesting isn't it? The words are actually not most applicable. Even to the disciples themselves. The words are more applicable to the ones that are going to face the judgment in 70 AD and even more to us who are later before the second coming. Do you understand? So in some ways, the passage is more applicable to you than it was back then in some ways. At the same time, all of the events that happened from 
before the destruction of the temple all the way to the return of Christ, all of the events, all of this time could be considered the last days. And it would include evil. All of this time is bad. This whole time. Let's do a history search. <laughs> look back over history. We look at World War II and we don't say, oh, that was a great time of the society getting a little bit better. Would you not agree? To kill 7 million Jews? There's a problem, right? How about the countless abortions that are happening right now? It's, it's staggering, isn't it? Millions of people are being killed. Look at our history of our world. Is, are things getting better? By the way, do you think you can usher in the kingdom by making things better? You ain't going to do it, I promise. Jesus doesn't say in Luke 21, as days get better, work on social programs. What I want you to do, work really hard on social programs and make everything look better so that I'll come back. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't look anything like that. Am I right? He says, guess what? You're going to get persecuted. It's going to be rough. You're going to be turned on by friends. People are going to hate you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Hmm. This is a whole different kind of answer, isn't it? Boy, by the way, that just throws out the post mills. All of y'all that are wondering about that. The post-millennial view says that God, that things will get better and better and better and then we'll usher in the kingdom and Jesus will return. It doesn't work that way. In the last days, things are going to get go from bad to worse. So Jesus gives this one all-encompassing answer in Luke 21 and Matthew 24 and 25. Let's look. Jesus could come at it and, and say, in effect, this is what you need to know. Jesus' answer can be outlined by seven main commands that he gave his disciples to heed in light of the coming events. Let's start looking through these commands. First, avoid being duped by false Christ. Avoid being duped by false Christ. You see this in verse 8. It says, and he said, see to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is near. Do not go after them. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a warning to avoid being misled by those who will come claiming to be Christ. Often associated with these deceivers who claim to be Christ was the false prophecy that the time is near. Now it's interesting to me that we all should be ready as if the time is near and it should, it's been like this for the last 2,000 years. We should assume at any moment Jesus could return. So we should be ready for that, right? And yet a false prophet does what? He comes up and he says, I'm Christ, and the time is near. Wait, some of that's true, isn't it? We're supposed to think that the time is near. But what they do is they use a little bit of the truth to deceive people and cause people to go astray. They interpret the events and they say, Ah, oh, people will be afraid, so let's talk about it's close. It's about to happen. Tomorrow could be the day. Or December whatever could be the day. And so they give these things to us. Jesus started his answer with a warning to avoid false prophets and false Christ. 
I think it's very important that we all understand that there is a very uh, important role from the pulpit and from our church as a whole, the leadership. We should be warning you against false teachers. That is an element of my role, our role as a shepherd. We should be telling you, this is false, that's false, this is wrong. Now, there is a kind of a, a push now that we need to be more uh, tolerant or gentle and not call people out. Because if you call people out, you're just being harsh and you're not being very kind. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if I know that your house is burning and caught on fire, I'm going to call out to you, get out of the burning house. Do you understand? That would be the most loving thing for me to do. Jesus is saying, be careful, false Christ, false prophets will come and try to lead you astray. During the days after Jesus' first coming, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, historians say that there were many people that began to say they were the Christ. And this pattern of antichrist and false Christ has continued over the years, hasn't it? I was shocked. I did a poll and, and said, people claiming to be Christ. And, and, and did a study. You know, Wikipedia is a really interesting thing. Not all information's accurate, but it's interesting. The list was long of people that claimed to be Christ. This is what they do. Madmen have used fear and intimidation to lead people astray for years, haven't they? This call to avoid being misled is one we all need to heed. Again, often false prophets use fear over the end to rally supporters to follow them. That's what Jim Jones did, you know. I hope some of y'all young people don't know about him, but he led 900 people to commit suicide in, in Guyana. He was a madman. He claimed to be the Messiah. His own mother called him, I have birthed the Messiah. Can you imagine being raised with your mother telling you you're the Messiah? That's a problem, isn't it? You're the Christ. Oh, my. Folks, be on guard. Listen, often these false prophets start with a call of isolation from the evil world. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? How many of you want to be isolated from the evil world? How many of you don't want to be influenced by the evil world? Everybody? Oh, you're prone then. You're prone. Be careful. Those are the ones that will lead you astray. Then they isolate you and they drum up fear over the world circumstances. They say, the time is near. The time is near. The time is near. Be careful. The world's going to get you. That's what they say. And then when the government comes to dispel them because they got guns and they're pointed at everybody else, they tell you to shoot yourself or kill yourself or drink the Kool-Aid. That's the truth. They also claim new revelation as a means of giving people false help, hope in a world of chaos. Let me tell you something. If someone comes up to you with something new, he's really intriguing. And he's also elevated to an unhealthy level of respect from his followers. Run. Run. This is the enemy. Don't go after them. 
Listen, if someone comes to you offering something good here and now in this world, then it's very well could be a sugar-coated lie. Look, folks, if it's too good to be true, it is in this world. If they're promised you new great things here in this cursed world, run! Especially when it comes to anything this world has to offer. Do you understand? Now, second, he gives another command. He says, don't be terrified by the world's chaos. (coughs) He says, (coughs) when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So the setting for this next command is the world's terrors to come. Again, as I said, often false teachers use fear to lead people astray, correct? Well, as the world becomes a fearful place, Jesus warns the disciples that wars and rumors of wars will rise. But don't be fearful. Don't be terrified. I find it so interesting that in our day and time with internet and television and mobile phones and the dissemination of uh, fear producing information readily available, we are set prime for a mistake and falls. We are perfectly set up to fall, all of us. Do you know at a moment's notice you can know about anything bad happening anywhere on the globe? It's as if we are one big fear factor. At one second you're going to have something else coming at you. Isn't that happening all the time? Don't watch the news, whatever you do, because you're going to see... uh, My kids were... Caleb and them were watching this week. They were watching news and... And Caleb said, Dad, is everything bad? (laughs) He's sitting there, man, everything's bad. I said, yeah, son, Jesus is Lord. He's so much better. Look at how fast our country fell for this uh, Sandy Hills Elementary shooting. Now, I believe it happened, but look at the things that happened as a consequence of the events. You're talking major changes. Huge changes all over the country. Immediately. It's all because of the dissemination of fear producing information. At a moment's notice. We must not allow wars and rumors of wars to drive us to fear. We must understand that nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be these kind of things. It's part of it. This is the age we live in. Jesus gave the reason why the disciples must not fear in the passage. In verse 9, look. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Interesting. Again, what do we see here? All of the events that must take place first. They must take place first. What's this imply? This means all events are part of God's ordained plan. And yet we see that Jesus said that the end does not follow immediately. Jesus is implying that everything, even wars, are determined by God. All things are determined by God. Now, I find it so intriguing to me 
that my Reformed brothers and sisters, many of us that have a covenantal background, or some of the brothers that are this way, they are completely against talking about prophecy. Yet the one place that you can probably see the sovereignty of God the most is in prophecy. It's very interesting to me. See, we know that God is in control because he tells us the end from the beginning. And he tells us all that's going to happen before it happens. That means he knows what's going to happen all the way to the time he comes back. What does this say? This says, in effect, to all of us as the chaos around us falls around. What is the solution to fear? Trust in the Lord. That's the solution. Trust in the God that's in control. Don't trust in yourself. So as if the wars and rumors of war were not enough, Jesus adds in verse 11, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. This section, I think, Jesus is giving a snapshot of the entire time between his first coming and his second coming because of the events listed, especially included the great earthquakes. Nation will rise against nation, kings against kingdoms against kingdoms. This obviously points to a fairly long period of time. Would you not agree? For various nations to rise against another nation, how long does it take for a nation to rise up to go against another nation? How about kingdoms against kingdoms? And you can have some, but not multiple ones, and lots of them. It looks to a longer period of time. Also, great earthquakes. I did a little bit of research on earthquakes. Who can tell me the biggest earthquake that happened before 70 A.D.? Nobody? Have you ever heard of that great earthquake of Pompeii? Happened in 62 A.D. You know the next great earthquake from, from record in history is 115 in Antioch, which is in Turkey. You're talking, you know, more almost 60 years later, 50 something years later. So for great earthquakes, multiple great earthquakes to happen, what do you have to have? A lot of time. By the way, there are lots of earthquakes that have happened. And a lot are happening now. There's also plagues and famines. You know when, the great, when a huge famine came across the land in, Roman, in the Roman Empire? In 165 A.D. It was a smallpox famine. And that was 5 million. By the way, why do you say, you say, why are you saying all these facts? Well, here's why. Because if you're a post-millennialist, all of this had to already happen. If you're a preterist, it all had to happen. It all had to happen before 70 A.D. And it doesn't appear that the history books show any of this stuff. It appears that a lot of this stuff's yet to come. This is the whole period of time. Do you understand? Terrors and great signs from heaven. Now, folks... I just couldn't find anything in the way of heavenly signs in history until you get to our age where people start notating things like meteor showers. <laughs> like the one in, that happened what? The meteor that hit in Russia just recently. It's very interesting. Either way, even if Jesus was referring to some heavenly signs just before the destruction... It's very important to note, Jesus reveals these events are part of God's ordained plan. So we must not worry, but instead we must trust in Him. By the way, just take it for, to note, I am not telling you the end is near. <laughs> I'm telling you, if God decides that it's soon, He could come back. It's imminent. 
It could happen at any time. It could happen tonight, today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in a thousand years from now. Okay? God knows. I don't know. But I do know that days are going to be rough. And it's, we live in a society in a time that is looks like it's in chaos, but God is in control. I don't think these events are descri- only describe the events of the destruction of Jerusalem. These are merely the birth pains, though, is what Mark says in 13.8. What's the main point that Jesus has for this section? The point is, do not look for these signs and worry when you see them. His point is, realize that these things are going to happen. Don't fear. That's his main point. Don't be afraid when you see the world falling down around you. By the way, let's get real personal and real good application here. If it's going to be hard for you to handle a, a great earthquake and you fear because of you fear death because of a great earthquake or a meteor shower or a meteor or something like that, don't you think it applies to the small things in your life too? What do I mean by that? Oh, God's in control. He's in control of meteor showers. But, you know, my boss laying me off. That, that, that's not him. Oh, really? No, he's in control of all things. And we can't fear no matter what our circumstances are. We have to trust God all the time. This is a call to trust him no matter how much the chaos is in your life. I would argue that we are all... We all believe in the sovereignty of God and the big issues, but the small issues, that's when we bail on God. That's when we start worrying. Do you all understand what I'm getting at? If he can handle the big issues and he has the end declared in the beginning, don't you think he can handle your life and what's going on in you? It's somewhat like... If God can create the day, world in six days, don't you think he can handle your problems? We need to trust God. We need to trust God. That is it. That's the call. Trust God. We don't all need to go out and build bomb shelters when things happen. We all don't need to go and, and get this gigantic food pantry and start hoarding food and saving it because... The world's coming to an end. Oh, no. Notice he did not say anything like that. Make sure, go get you a bomb shelter and put a bunch of canned foods down there so that you can feed yourself. Didn't say any of that. He said, trust God. Trust God. Next we see, he says in effect, be strong and courageous for the Lord is with you. But in 12 through 19, he says, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons. Now, by the way, notice the phrase at the beginning, but before all these things, before those, you're going to get this persecution. So that might imply that those things are after, right? They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your mind not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. 
and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. There are two gigantic problems when I look at this passage. <laughs> two things that just scream at me. Okay, first one is, is the command itself in verse, 12, in verse 14. The command itself seems to imply to me, hey, why are we studying our Bibles? Why do we need to prepare? Because after all, we're going to, he's just going to give us the words, right? He's going to give us our words. He says, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. Is that what he's talking about? No. We'll talk about it in a second. Second, in verse 16 it says, but you will be betrayed, but it, it starts, they, or it ends with, and they will put some of you to death. But then look at verse 18. Yet not a hair on your head will perish. I thought death meant your hair dies too. <laughs> Does that look confusing to you or am I the only one? That looks confusing to me. <laughs> Again, you've got to step back and look at what he's trying to say. What's his point? This is a call to continue in the faith, to persevere, a call to be strong and courageous despite the pressures, a call to trust in the living God, an exhortation to hang on, carry on, stick it out in the face of various dangers. So here we go with the great promise from the Lord, a promise that not many of us would like made to us. They will lay hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. You're going to be roughed up. You will be persecuted. You will be brought before some intimidating people. All of this will come up upon them for Jesus' namesake. It will happen for the purpose of Christ's person and work being proclaimed. Again, as we know from Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.12, what's it say? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> wow, that's not a promise we memorize. Unless you're at Grace Bible Church and Pastor Mike brings it up every six months or so. What's the point? We're living in an age, they were living in an age... Between Jesus' first coming and his second coming that can be characterized as a time of persecution and hardship for those who are committed to the king. It's just a reality, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I know some of you have been taught so many different things. You've been taught that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that you are going to get these great things that you come to Christ and things are just going to be awesome. Well, they are going to be awesome. As you meditate and are satisfied with Christ, that is awesome. Yes. But you're going to be persecuted. Friends are going to hate you. Spouses are going to leave you. All of these things are going to happen. You say, not my spouse. My spouse loves Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's good. The reality is, is that there's a lot of people that say they believe but don't. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things for you? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, 
Is Jesus telling the men? Now, let, let, let's continue on. When we, when we see these events and these things, these hardships, we must see what they really are for. What are they for? They're opportunities for testimony. They're opportunities for testimony. When you have people turn on you, how do you view it? Initially, when you have something, somebody turn on you and treat you bad, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Here's mine. I'll be honest. A lot of times it happens. It's, that's not fair. Right? What are you doing? What did I do to produce this? Why are you treating me like this? I didn't do anything to you. Why are you doing this to me? Correct? Ladies and gentlemen, you want an opportunity to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you want that? then you need to live what he lived. See, as you are rejected by people, and you're standing for the truth, and you're doing it with grace and humility, not poking them in the eye and saying, I'm a Christian, you're not. That's not what I'm talking about. Proud Christianity, is there's no place for proud Christianity at all. But the humble Christian that is persecuted and treated mistreated, This is an opportunity for you to testify to that Christ is sufficient in your life, even if people are treating you bad. How many of you look at persecution or mistreatment that way? When that person cuts you off in, in, in front of you and you're driving along, they cut you off, you think, oh, an opportunity! Yes! Hi! Love you! No, 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 be careful. Even then, because they'll misunderstand you. It's more about your heart, isn't it? It's more about your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, when we can be satisfied with Christ when we're mistreated, that's what it's all about. We live in an age and a time where we have lots of opportunities. Isn't that great? And every time you're mistreated, we must think that way, make it up in our mind, not prepare beforehand to defend ourselves, but instead give testimony to Christ. That's what he gets at with this. Jesus is not telling them to don't read their Bibles. Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved, a good workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. What does that mean? Well, what that means is we need to prepare. We study our word. We know the Bible. We seek these things. At the same time, we trust the Lord and we don't try to defend ourselves. It's not about me getting my rights. Do you understand? Did you know that you have followed Christ, which means that you lay all your rights down? Woo! Boy, that would go over great in America, right? Let's preach that sermon. Ladies and gentlemen, you're signing up to follow Jesus. Lay your rights down. Quit defending yourself. Anybody in here think that way? Naturally, all the time? No. That's what he's getting at. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ is enough. Don't defend yourself. Think of the Messiah. What did the Messiah do? Though he was being treated harshly, he did not even open his mouth to give a defense. Think of the Christ. 
I, I was, we were reading in our Bible time this week as you're reading. We're going through the cross, right? And as we're going through the cross and we're looking at this, I'm just sitting there in awe of my Savior, thinking on this truth of how great he is. Think about him for a second, just a second. Think about this. This is the God-man. And they are slapping him in the face and spitting on him. Now, everybody in this room, if you're spit on, the natural reaction for you would be what? That ain't right. That's not fair. I'm a human like you. Do you think you have the right to spit on me? Treat me this way? If there was one person that could say that, it was Jesus, and he didn't open his mouth. Oh, that's what he's getting at. Stop defending your rights. You're a slave of righteousness now. You're a slave of Christ. And he died for you. Man, I wish I could get this message and keep it in my head all the time, right? We don't think that way, do we? How do we keep thinking that way? You know, the disciples couldn't think that way before the cross either. This is why Peter says things like, who's with me? And he says, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll lay down my life for you. Then he sees Jesus hit, beaten, crucified. And his whole demeanor changes, doesn't it? After the cross and the resurrection. Do you love me, Peter? Do you agape? Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Are you totally committed to me? Yeah, you know I like you, Lord. That's what he says in John 21. You know I have a, a good brotherly love for you, brother. It's not. He knows it. Peter gets it. Oh, folks, what is our answer? The answer is Christ. He is enough. He is sufficient. He is our hope. Trust him, not yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, as we go to the Lord's Supper now, we pray that you will help us to prepare our hearts to reflect on the glory of your Son. We commit the day to you, Lord. We pray that you help us to turn from our sins and confess those sins to you now before we approach this table and reflect on the glory of our Savior who came to die for us. Thank you. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.